James Barton is a seasoned sales development leader with over 13 years of managing SDR teams, big and small. Currently, he's the head of sales development at Venify, a world-class cybersecurity company dedicated to protecting and managing machine identities. In this episode, we talk about what it's like leading sales development at a very large enterprise-sized company, leading through acquisitions, why SDR leaders have to master the tech their team uses, the importance of partnering with RevOps, AI and sales development, and much more. James is truly a legend in the game, so I hope you're ready to take notes because he drops all sorts of gems in this interview. Okay, James, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. As you know, you're someone I've admired for a long time. I've seen you speak a few times as well, and I can't wait for the audience to learn from all the wisdom that you have to bring today. Uh, the first thing I want to say is congratulations. You have a baby due tomorrow, uh, is, is what I understand, right? That's exciting. Yep. And the first one. So tell me how you feel about that. And thank you for taking the time away from you know that and being with your wife to, to be here with us. Yeah, and, and Derek, thanks so much for having me. Um, it's it's a pleasure, and it's always fantastic to connect with you. Um, yeah, it's 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 an adventure. Yeah, I, I didn't really think I'd ever become a parent. Uh, I, I found my wife digitally through the oh. dating apps and lots of overlapping worlds uh, through the University of Michigan, uh, where we both went to school. And yeah, as as time has gone by, it's kind of a weird indicator that I found early on about us and our relationship is that I've been able to realize something like four of my five lifelong dreams because of my wife. Aww. It's true. And one of her lifelong, or actually she had a few that we've been able to accomplish for her too. Um, but one of hers is, was to become a mom for the first time. So it was, it's been a lot of fun and it's, it's, you know, something that's uh, an adventure we're, we're just starting. Right. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's a uh, it's an amazing adventure. I've been down the road a few times, and uh, you know, at, at every phase, it's this new beautiful thing. You know, whether they're you know infants or they're starting to walk and adolescence, teenagehood is is as scary as having a daughter or a son. And uh, at, at the teenagehood, it sounds like, but it's it's fun at, at the end of the day. And I'm sure you'll be a, a great dad, and I'm sure she'll be a great mom. But a question. So you four out of the five. What's the missing one? What's 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 missing? What goal hasn't been accomplished? Uh, it's basically just travel around the world, copy nonstop. Right. But buy one of those open-ended tickets and just go. Just <laughs> right. Whenever I feel like going to one-way ticket, go. Yep. <laughs> yeah, one way going west. Right. <laughs> I like that. Very yeah. good. Well, congratulations on that. And we were talking offline. You shared some personal stuff, and I want to go and pack your journey a little bit to get to know you, and for the audience to get to know you a little closer. And here on the show, if you've listened, and for those that are listening, I always try to go off the beaten path a little bit to get to know our cat, our guests, and understand you know kind of where they're coming from. You shared with me that you unfortunately uh, lost your mom uh, about two weeks ago, five years ago. Is that right? Five, five years and two weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. Two so almost an anniversary that corresponds with the birth of of your first one. So. Tell me about how your mom impacted your career and what it's like having your first child and her not being here. Um, well, I'll even before go before my career. Uh, my mom was a housewife. She never had a formal higher education. We used to joke that the only time she went to college was to drop me off or pick me up. <laughs> there you go. Um, but she was probably one of the most brilliant human beings you ever met in your life. She was a first class stewardess for Pan Am Airlines. Wow. Uh, her father was a Royal Air Force pilot and one of the chief pilots for British, which is now British Airways. Um, and having a a post World War II mother, she brought a a perspective a mentality a culture 
to our family, let alone me, um, that I still tap into today. Um, she, she would, you know, give me advice. And I hate the fact that even years later after she's died, she's still In freaking right yeah. all the time. And I can hear her going, <laughs> see, see. Yeah. And you're um, going to be repeating those words very soon. I'm sure. <laughs> I look forward to it. I look yeah. forward to being an annoying father. Um, but no, she, she gave me these, these big chunks of advice that, you know, weren't very specific to one certain topic, one certain subject, but were really helpful in big categories of subjects. And when it comes down to your career path, you know, I, I used to joke with her that I, I always wanted to run away from people interviewing me. Where do you see yourself in five years? I'm like, I don't know. I can't predict the future. Like, I couldn't have predicted five years ago I'd be where I am today or with my wife how about to have a baby or living in Texas. Didn't. Mm. Um, but she goes, you know, one day at a time, always try to put yourself into a, an advantage to be progressive, to be set up for the next step. Or the, one of her less favorite lines was, luck favors the prepared. Oh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Agree 100%. Um, but she, she also, you know, put some things on me but as a parent, which is funny because it's now going to be more relevant than ever before. But it translated into my career path and, and eventually people leadership. Right. Um, she was raised in a very strict post-World War II home, uh, military home, where even when I was 15 years old, she would go back and visit her parents in England. She would have a curfew. And you're like, really? Interesting. Yeah. So she would always recommend. So grandpa was putting on the curfew on your mom when she'd go back to visit. Wow. I mean, well into her 50s wow. and 60s almost, right? Um but right. one of the things that, that stuck with me early on was that she goes, I always wanted to be the parent I never had. Mm-hmm. So when I turned 16, she gave me keys to the car, a gas card, no curfew, a 12-pack of beer. She worked in the counseling office. So she knew what mom the is the were. Best, oh, it got, it got better. She <laughs> let my girlfriend sleep over. She gave me and my friends boxes of condoms. I'm like, what am I going to do with this? This is so weird. <laughs> she went um, far left. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she she was the cool. But she knew that. She, she spoke to me about it once. Okay. And this is another big key uh, that I've held with me as well is her philosophy was you give your kid or you give your team members all of the freedom and responsibility in the world. And if they violate it, you take it away. Hmm. So I was a good kid. I never missed curfew. Well, I didn't have curfew. So, but I never screwed up. I never got a speeding ticket. I never, you know, the DUI always was make sure I was the, the designated driver or whatever it was back in the right. day. But it, it became like I think that one of the foundations of you know you didn't want to screw up become... that freedom. I, I, I always look at it that way. You know, father was in the military, Air Force. He was an MP in the Air Force. Uh, wow. Similar thing where you know very strict household when I lived with him, and yeah, you know. But at the end of the day, it's those things that kind of prepare us to to be better at the end of the day. I think. Um, but it, you know, the, when I did get the freedom from him. You know, I, I never wanted to screw it up. So I was always mindful of it. You know, if there was a certain curfew or whatnot, if you could just maintain that, then, you know, I could keep getting my little bit of freedom. You know, I knew if the minute I didn't check in, the minute I wasn't back at the yeah. right time or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. Same thing. You know, a few times I was out, probably had too much to drink. I guess I even though he was the strict dad, I could call him and he'd pick me up. And that that earned respect in itself from him. Yeah. So, that's great. A little bit there. But, you know, that's a, you know, interesting time right you're having your first one mom isn't around it sounds like she influenced you a lot you were pretty close so mm-hmm. you know i think uh at least she's instilled those lessons 
that you'll be able to take into your parenthood, I, I would imagine. But you know, congratulations. Yeah, I, th- I think, thank you. I, I think, you know, regardless of your points of view of religion or beliefs, and I respect right. all of them, I'll never discount anybody's beliefs. Um, you know, regardless of what happens, where you are, what you experience is, when you lose someone in like kind of that inner circle, you're your top five or whatever, yeah. he was number one at the time. You, you walk away with parts of them and that parts of them that you never had before and you apply it to everything you're doing in your life. So right. um, becoming a father without my mother around is, you know, we, we've had some tearful nights. It's been tough. Um, I even had my godmother sent me a grandma basket, which is like mm-hmm. the basket you leave at yeah. your in-laws or your parents' house. So you don't have to sl- schlep all your gear over there. Right. I have nowhere to put the basket. Right. So it's kind of like, uh cool but you have it you know it's uh, yeah you have it yeah so uh your wife's family or are they around uh no i mean both of us are over a thousand miles away from the closest family member so uh illinois salt lake city for me san francisco uh, a little bit in hawaii so salido Um, area yeah yeah Well, well, you know, good luck. You know, it's the two of you Thank making you. it happen. And uh, I know it's an exciting time. So, you know, as you tread forward, um, you know, one day at a time, have fun with it. And that's the number one rule. Just don't forget to have fun. You know, it's, it's stressful and it's difficult. It might, might get at times. Just keep making it fun, whatever it is. That's my advice, at least. Thanks. <laughs> um, let's talk about some more lessons that you've taken away in your career. Now, your first stop, Early in your career was a, a company that some of us might know, a little small company called Success Factors, uh, acquired by SAP. Now you were there during the acquisition, I believe, right? So you were at yep. SAP and then uh, acquired by Success Factors. Is that kind of how that played out for you, or opposite? Other way around. You were at SAP and they acquired Success Factors. I was at Success Factors and got acquired okay. by SAP. Cool. There you go. So you got <laughs> you got acquired. You're you yep. you were acquired. So. Um, what was your position at the time when you were acquired and what was that like you know, kind of selling through that acquisition? Uh, so I was actually there pre-IPO, IPO, downturn of the market, and then the acquisition as well. So it was a roller coaster. So I started off as an SDR. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Went, gra- graduated into enterprise field sales for a year in 2008. 2008 was always, a, you know, no matter where you went. You're always going to find that, you know, rough time that right. somebody, team or company had during this time. Mm-hmm. That's my story, my, that's my, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was offered my job back as an SDR. So uh, I was an SDR twice, not just once. Uh, mm-hmm. So for about two and a half years formally as an SDR and then a year as a prospecting sales rep as well. So I like to say I was an SDR through that time too. So when uh, SAP came along uh, to acquire us, I was I was running the the sales development department uh, pretty much globally. Uh, okay. We had about uh, I think forty people by then, oh. maybe a little bit more, uh, but we were growing, and I think we got to about almost seventy by the time I left. So, so going through the acquisition, I know I went through one that was a pretty big one as well, and the like we had to run two Salesforce instances for like a year. It took a, a legit a year for the two companies to finally become one. Uh, in some cases, it took longer depending on what operational limitations are happening. But as a leader at the time, it was interesting. You know, you had people who were worried about their job, you know, were being acquired, are they going to get rid of everybody? And so you're trying to manage expectations that way and keep people productive. We have a whole new set of products that we had to sell. We weren't just selling the handful that we were already had been trained to sell, but now we needed this to sell this bigger 
bucket of products. You know, we had been acquired by Dell. So, you know, there was all this new stuff. And so I'm curious, like when you went through that process, is that what was that like for for you and your team to manage through that? I would imagine that to it was a bumpy road, the acquisition, the downturn, all these inflection points. How did you yeah. remain successful through that those distractions? So we we didn't and and it's always kind of a not a scary, but kind of like the fear of the unknown or fear of what's about to come when you have right. that kind of reality. Um, you see things happening, but you don't have all the information, right? Because right. it's or you yeah. hear things or they you know it's going on on that side of the fence. Does that mean it's gonna come on this side of the fence? So SAP was actually a really respectful uh company and leadership team. Um and they really didn't do a thing the first year. It was mm. just more of like I'm speculating and having conversations after the fact, but it was more along the lines of planning and how do we integrate? Do we keep it separate? You know, do we just open up the bag available of available, you know, subject matter experts, let alone products? So for us and the SDR team, I mean, at least I created the reality for my team or tried to create reality for my team that nothing was changing. Uh, same goals, same targets, a little bit more formal when it comes to like comp plans and reporting. Uh, we didn't change CRMs, thankfully, because mm. we did that once before and it was, oh, mess. <laughs> Don't want to do that again. Um, but no, for the most, for me personally, it was actually a really great experience because um, SAP started coming along and they found out that I was a big player in redesigning our uh, model and comp plan uh, years before in 2009 when it came mm. back to the SDR team. And I was teaching SAP how to redesign their model structure, comp plan, incentives, nice. et cetera. So when, when it comes down to um, you know what my experience was, it was nothing but great experience. Um, even years later, I people that were on the inside sales, sales development team at SAP that I run across, their paths cross, and they're like, you were that guy? You're the guy that helped us read us? Oh my God, thank you so much. And I'm like, I... I sat in a conference room for eight hours. I did, a day. I did what I do. <laughs> no, I took conversations. I didn't even know it was going to go anywhere. So I'm glad it worked out. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, I think it's a huge advantage when you can see what it looks like at scale and then work for smaller companies. I think you bring a lot of insight that way. And I'm sure that's probably what's played out in your career, right? You, what you saw at SAP, well, it may, I think you left, it looks like 2013. So it's been 10 years but there's still a major thumbprint on your management style based on what you learned there. Am I, is it fair to say that? hundred um, percent. We, we were aligned to the sales operations or today they call it revenue operations department mm. rolling up to the chief operations officer, amazing human being. And he, he still kind of set the bar as far as the kind of operations professional that I always love to work with, or even, you know, maybe one day I'm lucky enough to work with him again. Um, so I, I, I grew up in a very analytical and kind of just data oriented kind of world. That was my experience, right. Right. especially when I got into leadership, it, I had to learn what the ratios were between, you know, what, what good looks like and what great looks like, or how to, you know, build those invisible levers to push and pull along the way that, you know, Sales operations, they're supposed to look at data and not analyze it in a three-dimensional way, however they can. But the good sales ops leaders or rev ops leaders use the data 
to create the structure to form the question, not necessarily to answer the question in its entirety, because there's always two parts. There's the data and then there's the story. So as my sister, who's an executive in HR, once said, remember, there's your story, there's my story, then there's the truth. Right. And that's very true when it comes to BI versus you know the real world story. There's always a little bit of an overlap. But that was one of the biggest lessons I learned just being in the throes of it, uh, rolling up through sales operations, which I loved. Yeah, I think we see that in larger companies more also, more often. But uh, other than that, it's usually sales and, or marketing most often, right? We're, we're lining up to. So it's cool to hear that inherent to rolling up in that organization, you were exposed to the operational elements at a, at a different level that you probably wouldn't have been if you reported into marketing or, or into sales. And I, I, yeah, I think it's a, you know, sales development is a operationally centric role. It, it, it's just the way it operates. There's a heavy tech component to it. And obviously we'll talk about culture and different things as well, but yeah, the process, right. Um, the efficiencies, a lot of that is operationally oriented. So I always think that the leadership has to be pretty operationally sound of an SDR team for that exact reason. And because your rev ops sales ops teams are usually pretty consumed downstream, unless you have like a dedicated sales development operations person. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, you know, you, you go to where the revenue is and then you worry about sales development. And because of that, if managers are not, I don't think uh, able to work with the technology effectively, then the team is, is, is hindered. Do you, do you... And I think on it, I, I totally agree with everything you just said, especially in a couple of examples. One is 2009, we had been kicked off of Salesforce's platform because apparently we kept, you know, grabbing their oh, talent yeah. and bringing them over. Right. <laughs> of course. Yeah. So we, we, we got kicked off and we had to go oh. over to Siebel system CRM. And I'm like, mm. Ooh, I, mm. it's almost better to write down on paper. <laughs> um, no, no, no disrespect, but it was just in comparison of what we were used to. Yeah, yeah. So I guess Mr. Benioff and our CEO, Lars Dahlgaard, kissed him made up and we're like, sweet, we're back on the Salesforce. And they're asking for volunteers of, you know, departmental admins. I'm like, mm -hmm. I want to do it. And I think that was one of the things that I started right. recognizing. And, and I got the advice in the interview years later from, from a hiring manager, it just didn't work out, but she gave me this amazing piece of advice. Any technology that touches your team, you either want to be an admin of, you want, or you want to get to know it front to back, or you want to be hands on it with it every single day. Because if you're barking orders or asking things of your team that you've never done, you've never had a team done, or you don't know anybody who's ever done it ever, then you got a real problem. Right. That's a, a sure way to have your team disengage from your from you specifically yeah. as a leader is like you don't understand the realities of what I'm dealing with in the front line. I have 12 pieces of technology I have to work with every day and they all have a myriad of features and functionality. And if you can't you know, pull the strings of the tech like I can, then what are we talking about here? Is it all talk or are you are you to show me something? Right. Um, yeah. Well, right. uh, and, and, it, and it paid off though. In 2014, I went, I left Success Factors SAP and went to a, a startup in Palo Alto called IOSDI. Um, Amazing, amazing AI technology. But I came in as the sales development leader, uh, reporting up to our chief revenue officer, and okay. there was no RevOps, there was no sales ops person. And I'm oh, like, gosh. I can do it. See, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I was kind of, and, and the interesting thing is, and the last thing I'll say about the crossover with sales ops versus marketing or sales is that sales development and, and sales operations, revenue operations, is very similar. They're kind of like the bridge between marketing and sales. 
So one could argue in a sales development team has equal say of reporting to marketing, equal say to sales ops, and equal say to sales. So it's it's you know I get the question all the time, and we you and I've talked about it. But for me, you know, I think because we are the bridge, I love rolling up through sales operations. Love it. Um, no disrespect to sales and marketing, but yeah. that's kind of you know it, it it's definitely empowered me a lot more rolling up through sales operations over the years versus sales or marketing. Well, there's some, there's some definitely some lessons there. Strategically, if you know I'm in a strategy role for an organization, thinking about that alignment and having you know sales development report into operations, I think there's definitely a value piece there. You know, but for the SDR managers or the aspiring SDR managers, embrace the technology full heartedly, right? I think that's yeah. it. Really makes yeah. a difference in your in your career. I mean, look where you are, right? So I mean that that made, made a big difference for you. So I'm sure it can help other people. And that's similar story here. You know, early on, embraced it, got certified in Salesforce, became you know a RevOps leader. I mean, it just it segues from there. There's a lot. Not to say the tech is going to be the end all be all by any stretch. So we'll switch topics, but a definitely important point to call out. Yeah, it's it's good idea to be familiar with it. You don't have to be an expert, but I'm I'm also you know I was an SDR back in the dark ages where we didn't have automation. We had a CRM and I had a, <laughs> yeah. like a Word document I would copy paste email templates into right? right right. And if I got got it logged into Salesforce, I was lucky. So <laughs> I I had to pick up the phone and actually physically dial buttons. What? I know. <laughs> Did you have a I rotary could... phone? Just you know what? No, I've never owned a rotary phone in my entire life. <laughs> we did. And as a kid growing up with grandma, at grandma's house, she had a rotary phone. That's uh, fun. Yeah. Well, talking about the technology, you mentioned AI, and I wanted to ask you this. So you went to an AI company in 2013, 2014. So your early exposure to AI, and I know it was big data analytics, but there was an AI component to the organization. So yeah. talking about AI and talking about technology and sales development, let's let's talk about those two topics in one. What are your thoughts on AI in sales development today and what you're seeing? I think AI is a great feature. I think it's a trampoline. I think it's a crutch. I think it's a hand to hold for new hires as they ramp. Is it a replacement? Is it the holy grail? Is it going to replace sales development reps? Absolutely not especially in the mid-market enterprise space. Mid SMB, maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't really leaned in on the thought of, of AI and companies like ChatGPT possibly replacing the SDR function. But the one thing that I thought of, and it backed up on the podcast I was listening to not too far back, is that the people who are most scared of AI and ChatGPT are not sales professionals, marketing professionals, et cetera. It's the reporters who are reporting on them because they can be replaced by having these AI bots completely rewrite articles or put something mm. together for them. Right. I mean, right. even then there's holes in that. Like for instance, um, example, and I hate and I, not to be disrespectful to either university, but Michigan State University, uh, you know, one of my favorite Michigan schools, my top right. two favorite Michigan schools. Right. I see that um, on your profile. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, they, they had a, a shooting. Right, a really mm. tragic uh, occurrence in in the, the history of the university, and even you know University of Michigan was playing them basketball at University of Michigan. You know, we we all were. I wish I uh, we the, the student body was wearing you know Michigan State strong or Sparty strong and stuff. You super like in state support, but Vanderbilt University sent them a message of condolences 
but they used chat GPT and they got oh. caught. Oh. And then they had to write another message apologizing for the, the insensitivity of sending a message that clearly was not written by a human being. So it was, it's it, it it a, it no a factor of being insincere. Is that? Yeah. It's, it's taking the easy way out through technology and technology okay. is never, ever the answer. Mm -hmm. Like well, you and I have talked about the fact that I think that the average SDR hides behind technology way too much, mm -hmm. the automation, the text, whatever it may be. And then they just hit a button and they move on to the next task. I had so the state of Michigan as my territory in 2009, 44% of the businesses in the state of Michigan at the time were tied to the automotive industry. And every single one of those companies is going out of business. How the heck am I going to hide behind an email yeah. to convince these people like, hi, I know you're in a business and you just laid off 17,000 people, but like you, you call, you create a relationship. And I make the joke, but it's a little bit of truth behind it with my team. Marriages don't happen. Laws aren't passed. New true friendships, anything good in life did not start through an app, a chat or anything to do with email. Or, yeah, yeah, right. Right. Yep. right. I mean, like, I got married in person. You know, I my wife had to go to the the legal place to get her name name changed after we got married in person. She couldn't do it online, right? But that can change. So, right? like, I mean, you can get married in virtual reality. I guess. I mean, there I mean, a law would have to be passed or something. I'm sure. I, mean, I don't know if it's legal yet, but just thinking I mean, but, forward here, yeah. So the way I see it is that now in a legal hearing, photographs cannot be used as evidence because they're they're so. Highly manipulable. That's the yeah, right word. Yeah. Yeah. You can't use it. Yeah. So if if that Deep is fakes. kind of a precursor, yeah. If that's kind of a precursor of where we're going, you know that AI is going to be a great solution to learn how to write an email. Okay. Or a great way of putting I was an art major. You know, I, I can communicate, but I communicate in small words. I get in front of a technical audience, I'm like, uh <laughs> I don't know your big words, sorry. Oh, but yeah, I mean, sometimes those, they appreciate it. Some, you know, simplifying complex stuff, though. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But I think I think AI uh, is going to be a support thing always. Okay. Okay. So always enabling people, not enabling itself. Correct. Correct. Okay. That's interesting. And, uh, I and slightly people should disagree. not lean too heavily on it. It's fair. You know. No, like, no, no. But you know, you, the thing that I want to unpack is you mentioned. I've had this conversation with other guests. Is that it won't replace SDRs? So fully, right? Like you don't need. In, you don't need um, human SDRs because we have all this tech running. We have automation that can pull contact data, create records, create sequences, um, write the copy. You know, if conversational intelligence got to a, a good point, make calls, right? Like that fully auto thing. Yeah, we're not there. But don't you think that if I have the right AI tools going that I could have less SDRs and, and have more output? Uh, it's well, I'm going to answer the question. Yes. And no. Okay. So for the SMB space where it's highly transactional, it's all about numbers. It's about leads. It's about signups. It's about freemium, whatever you right, mean, hundred percent right. AI. You can lean on that heavily to filter out the junk because there's so much coming in using people hours to filter that when an AI can filter that for you. Right. Totally. Okay. I we'll agree with that. I mean, it's making life that much more, I don't want to say easy, efficient but and more, productive. Yeah. Yeah. Streamlined, efficient, productive. You get into the enterprise space. 
people who are in the enterprise space can see through that. Mm. People who are in the enterprise space, you don't get those numbers of inbound leads. You don't get that, you know, like the, the influx that just drowning from a fire hose. So you have to have somebody manning the helm or personing the helm, to be fair, um, to make sure that when those leads come in or when that those, you know, moments where you have the chat GPT or whatever it is for SMB, or AI for the, the SMB, it needs to take a human pause, right? They could put in an email address that isn't actually the corporate address, or they could have a secondary address, or they can come in as james.barton.gmail.com, but I can fill in my company name as like Facebook, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. but you're talking but about lead validation at this point, right? And that, yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's just the, the human in, in, inquisitiveness, I guess that's the real word right. too, mm -hmm. of a human being understanding it's, it's like what we learned in Ted Lasso in season one be curious, not judgmental. Don't jump to the conclusion that you know what you have in front of you is gold or pure. And like, right. like I was at a company, last company, an incredibly valuable lead came in. The problem was they signed up with their personal email address. So the, the AI within our filters filtered it out and it never got to an SDR. Thank goodness I was just Gmail. like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Thank goodness I was going through all the leads. I'm like, uh, that's Facebook. Holy yeah. crap. We have the personal email address to this decision maker here. Yeah. Right. So that is like the, the, the golden kind of ticket. If you can get the personal email address, the mobile phone number, and it's a big high profile account. Fair. I don't, I don't think AI either today, I don't know if it's going to happen eventually, but it, it is the human element that is still so important in those more strategic in high value scenarios that I don't think AI will ever replace. Yeah, Dan Rude referred to it as human agency. Uh, so I've been yeah. borrowing that in these That's discussions good. a lot is that it still needs the human agency to sort of orchestrate its use case as opposed to it dictating its own behavior. We still yeah. need to be governing. And I think at a macro level, if you zoom all the way out and look at AI across the globe, that's where regulation needs to step in as well. If we're talking totally point, right. So it is totally. a scary thing though. If you think about, you know, uh, what it, what it could do, you know, it's, 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 it has the ability to evolve on itself, right. And certain learning models. And it's the only technology yeah. ever that can do that. You know, the phone, the TV fire, none of these technologies, all of them were, were enabling the person. And now we have technology that's like enabling itself or has that ability to. Now the stuff that we're yeah. seeing on like writing better emails and calls, this stuff is vanilla compared to right. that advanced stuff that you're seeing. And I'm geeking out here. I watch a lot of YouTube videos and whatnot, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's where I think we're, we're watching your, your child will see a whole new landscape, right? Yeah, she'll she'll not know what a CD or a DVD or a Blu-ray is. She won't know what a you know VHS cassette is. What know, a, what all a, come on now, what a record! <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, if you, if you, first off, if you have Doctor Dre chronic on LP, first yes, off, sir. you win, right. you win. Second <laughs> off, like they're coming, they they came back. So the the dead technology can come back to life, can right. be re, re, reintroduced to the world. So. Hmm. No new thing with the sun. I, I like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't think tapes and Betamax is going to come back anytime soon, but you know, I, there's still, there's still possibilities. Yeah, frame relay, cloud computing, right? I mean, it, it, it's yeah. in a full circle. Yeah. Yeah, All right. Yeah, yeah. All right. Let's move on. Uh, I know we're short in time and you know, the hours are clicking away and due date, due time is, is literally hours away at this point. Right. Yeah. So I think um, I've got 30 hours left of freedom. 
<laughs> literally <laughs> literally literally 30 hours yeah quick should quick trip to vegas um, <laughs> all right so uh we talked about the your your success story about having the worst and i think we failed to mention that that time uh when you had the detroit territory michigan territory at sap that was the worst territory in the company and you yep. were the number one sdr in the company yep. Right. And the lesson that we took away from there is personalizing your approach, making it about them, not calling up, talking about yourself and actually calling people, getting in touch having human to human engagement and uh, caring about the person on their phone enough to you, you can put business aside, build the rapport and these sorts of things. So it was a very personal approach that you you took and it obviously paid huge dividends for your success there. And your AE was the number one rep in the, in the company as well at the same time too. Right. Yeah. It was, uh, people thought I was nuts. I even had a job offer on the table from the same company, go back into a sales role for the West coast sales team. And I'm like, I think there's something here. And the RVP is like, you're nuts, dude. All right. I don't see it, but good luck. Um, but I mean, it, it all whittled down to all of the States also surrounding Michigan. I had as a territory too, different sales mm -hmm. reps. Okay. But Michigan was the biggest lesson that spread into those the Great Lakes territory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, basically. Mm -hmm. um, you know, having a dad from the Midwest, having gone to school in the Midwest, I, I feel like I, you know, get the people cut from a similar cloth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, it hit home in this example where I called the, the head of HR, because that's the biggest, you know, key role, target persona we went after. Um, and this woman answered the phone and I could hear that she was crying. And I was like, uh, did I, I caught you in a bad time. And she's just, she just, just barfed all of this, these sob, amazingly, horribly sad stories about what she'd been doing in the past few weeks and laying people oh, wow. off and getting prepared for it. I caught her like moments after she got done notifying 17,000 people that they were being laid off. Mm, wow. And we just talked for like 40 minutes. I, I think 40 minutes, something like that. And you know, I realized that just sometimes you just need to shut up and listen and be a human. Be a human. And, right. and, and it also taught me a great lesson too. And, and she's like, wait, hold on. Who are you? Where are you from? I'm like, oh, I'm calling from Success Factors. I, I, she's like, this is a cold call. I'm like, technically it's a cold call, but I'm not in sales. And she goes, you're not? I'm like, no, I don't want your money. And she goes, huh? I'm like, I make money off my company, not you. She goes, okay. Oh, so I, I kind of okay. spun it in a way where mm -hmm. I'm like, hey, if I could take 15 minutes of your time and show you how you would never have to have this experience you just went through ever again, would it be worth it? And she goes, oh, hell yeah. Set up the meeting, deal went rolling, deep, the sales rep closed it. But it got to the point, and that I don't really tell this part of the story very often, is that especially in Michigan and the Detroit area, I would get my relationships to the point with my prospects that my sales rep would show up on site in Detroit. Bear in mind, I'm in the Bay Area, in San Francisco area. And they would always ask my sales rep, where's James? That's what's up. But that, yeah. That's that, kind of impression you were my, leaving on people. Mm -hmm. Right. That was my goal. I was part of the team. I was not, not memorable. Just, not snot nosed punk. You know, like, you're the SGR, make some calls. Yeah. I was like, I, I set the table. I opened the door. Love I that. led my reps to the, the doorstep. And it, for me, people don't take a second and actually realize 
buying something, let alone letting a vendor in the front door, is an emotional moment for a buyer. Yeah, they're they're putting a lot that on the line. That has never changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sticking the neck in the line. They're trying, especially HR. Sorry, I'm going to tangent here, but yeah. HR has never produced a single dollar of revenue in the history of mankind. So why the heck would they stick their neck out to buy something they don't know how to buy? They don't know how to ask for budget, and they don't know how to create a use case or a return on investment scenario to present to their executive leadership. And we're like, we'll do it for you. And this woman goes, you're going to do all that for us? Yeah, we'll do it. So it's, it's partnering, it's trust. It's the emotional side of things that, you know, AI can't offer. It's the relationship. It is the handshake agreement. It is the, let me buy you some pancakes. You're like pancakes. Okay. How'd you know? Because of, exactly. <laughs> but because of that, my sales rep was the pancake guy. Right? Okay. His, his, his customers love going and getting pancakes. Well, one thing that you mentioned in our, our offline discussions as well is that relationship between SDR and AE as well. So uh, I, I'm sure you teach your teams a lot about investing into that relationship. Talk about what that looks like, what, what I you know ideal uh, looks like, uh, yeah. utopia between a, AE and SDR. So the, the SDR, you don't really need to educate them on that aspect very much. You don't think so? Because mm. not, not as much as the sales rep. Oh, true. Okay. Especially in the enterprise space. Okay. The sales development rep were here, especially the, the 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 fresh new hires. They're like, let's go, let's do this. What can I do? How can I line? What can I do for you? Well, you know, they're 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 full of energy and, and Red Bull, right? But the sales reps, especially in the enterprise space, have been burned so many times by really crappy SDRs. My current company, for instance, we've they had a really bad experience. Uh me and i'm not saying you know i you know yeah, solved yeah. everything but they got burned so yeah. they were so self-dependent they didn't rely upon anybody else so i'd say like 75 percent of the education of how an sdr and ae work together most successfully has been oriented towards the sales reps at my company i have one-on-ones with almost every sales rep globally every month it's a lot of time yeah but it's worth it because it's yeah. creating and healing these wounds <clears throat> Excuse me, but it's got to the point where SDRs are now being invited to present at global QBRs. Like the nobody wants to hear from the old, the old the ball guy. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's and I and I make the analogy. I make analogies a lot, but it's it's not a Batman or Robin. It's a Han Solo Chewbacca. They are partners. There's no sidekick. Right, one just doesn't speak English. But <laughs> the younger guy, is, yeah, you might have to explain that one a little bit. But yeah, I got you. <laughs> right. But the, the, the point is, is that, you know, if, if you're going into the scenario where your sales rep and your SDR are partners, they're right, attacking right. accounts, they're, they're strategizing, you got mm-hmm. your foot in the front door and the sales reps recognize that the real power of an SDR is after they get the foot in the front door. And then they are like, all right, I need all the relationships connected to this All other stakeholders. I need secondary yeah. meetings. Go. Right. Right. Because sales development was created to create relationships that the sales rep couldn't find otherwise, and then focus the sales reps on closing deals. I think we're gonna clip that. That was a bar for sure. Yeah, the relationship piece of it, and you think more holistically. We were had uh, we had another guest from Zoom Info uh, on Zach Thompson. He's a director of sales development, and he uh, talks about a different way of looking at sales development, and it's not just new acquisition as well, right? There's expansion, there's renewal, there are other 
motions there where you can deploy sales development. But the point of matter is it still all comes back to relationships that salespeople probably wouldn't be able to get to and build on their own because right. they're focused downstream right. on closing. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, sales development, I think, is is the art form within the art form of sales. Mm. Like it is creating something that is organic. And I learned my my dad kept trying to force this relationship with me and his wife for years and years and years. And we never got along that great. I mean, we didn't hate each other, but we're like, Hey, what's up? Hey, yeah. good to see you. But the moment he no backed sparks off, flew, <laughs> got it. Right. Mm -hmm. But the moment he backed off, we would chat for hours and hours and hours. And now my stepmom is this great friend of mine, you know, like mm. she did not want to replace my mom, which she said early on. And she's just become like the moment you, you pull away and just give some freedom to the relationship to grow organically. That's where the, the real art form is. And that's how sales development, if you let their, them spread their wings, they can be pretty surprising of how amazing they can be. We'll talk about the culture uh, that you establish in your teams. I think that's an important area that we want to unpack here. You have a lot of uh, viewpoints on this. One of it being that culture is the bedrock of sales development teams. And cold, um, one of the lines that I, I'm stealing and will continue to steal from our offline discussion is culture cannot be created by leaders. Leaders can create the framework of culture, but ultimately it's the people they hire to fill into those, uh, fill in to those frameworks that create, drive, and uphold and defend the culture. Uh, yeah. That's a straight Bible verse right there, man. That's definitely going in the books. So talk about, unpack that for me. What does that mean to you when culture cannot be created by leaders? So, First stop in tech at success factors, culture was everything. Culture was first. We had a lot of one-liners that I still align to today uh, is the number one rule, no asshole rule. And yep. it's funny enough, I, I brought that into my personal life as well. I, I eliminated the people who kind of were asshole. Yeah. Uh, no, you know? Number like, one rule on this show, not, no assholes. No asshole. <laughs> yeah. But then there's other things like, uh, which hit home and I use it as a real world example. He, uh, our CEO, Lars Dahlgaard, uh, used uh, sayings like extra 10 pushups. You put an extra 10 pushups in every day, you end up having, you know, over 3000 extra pushups every year. Mm. And when my mom got sick, she had brain cancer. We had about 12 weeks before she passed away. I put in an extra couple of days or in a couple of extra hours with her because it all added up. And, and, you know, when the, when the, the sorrow and the sadness kind of started to subside, I realized that I, I have no regrets. There was not never a, I could have done more. I should have put more time with her. It, and it, it was true. It's a value and a lesson that I learned from work. And then um, at the last term, uh, which I think is the most famous uh, besides the no asshole rule. And Thomas Keller kind of has a different, the famous chef uh, has a different version of it, but uh, it, in, in, it was made famous by Toyota called Kaizen or just constant improvement, or if you're better than yesterday, it's not as you could, as you will build tomorrow. And Thomas Collar says just a little bit better than yesterday. Right. right? 1% like better every day, compounded effects. That's yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you, so, you breed that into the teams, that mindset yeah. of always just trying to get a little bit better every day. It's it's a little bit better every day. It's communicating. It's there are no silos in a business. As far as I'm concerned, like my work chart is upside down. Like it's not yeah, me do down, that. it's me mm. up, right? So if I can empower and support the team to have relationships with another, their sales reps, but also go to the marketing counterparts, the revenue operations counterparts, even our executive leadership, um, that in itself creates a, a, a an even deeper element of, of culture. I mean, I, I have gone into yeah. sales development teams and the culture is about as deep as a bathtub. 
But the moment you empower, you give freedom, you you educate, you bring in third parties. Like I started doing this thing this year uh, before going on parental leave of having guest stars, but not just internal guest stars. Like a buddy back from my success factors days worked for a venture capital firm uh, as their kind of CISO in residence. Uh, and he joined the team. It was supposed to be for 20 minutes and it being an hour and 20 minutes. Nice. Okay. Yeah. And they, they, they're getting firsthand education from somebody who has no tie to us. He, I sent him a couple of bottles of wine, right? Like to say, thank you. Like he, a buddy was doing another buddy a favor. Right. But it's, it's, it's those kind of things. It's, it's offering up something. The team saw you that, investing to them and bridging that gap and, you know, going outside right. to bring in new insights. And one thing I didn't tell you when we connected offline, uh, we had a, a, a riff this past oh, November. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was heartbreaking, especially because I unfortunately lost a, a SDR manager for the Americas who I adore. I've worked with mm-hmm. for a couple of companies. He's one of my, still one of my favorite people. And, and unfortunately, I think it kind of soured our relationship. I know it'll get better eventually. But I get onto the team call uh, soon after that took place and I was crying in front of my team mm. and I, the whole thing, meaning, but what, and then I connected with all of them one-on-one and I apologized for losing my cool and not being professional. And every single one of them had a very similar response. It's just like, James, you, you pour so much of your heart and soul into this team and this culture. We'd be surprised if you didn't cry. Right. You genuinely have a give a shit factor. Uh, that's what John Brown right. calls it. The give a shit factor. Mm-hmm. Right. And and if and one of the things that was interesting back, they didn't do it after a while, but success factors when you first joined the company back when I did, you get a copy of this book. I forget the name of the title, but it was about Southwest Airlines. It was much before what happened recently over the holidays, blah, blah, blah. But the whole thing started with culture. You empower, you lift up, you encourage, you motivate the individual before the team or the business. And each individual will bring that positivity, their own personal culture back to their job, back to their day-to-day, back to the group they're immediately working with. And that spreads out beyond the boards of their team and department. So I firmly believe the individual comes first before the company. People and before that success factors. Mm. People before anything. Mm. Because no matter what, every company's in the people business. Right. I agree. And as Michael Scott likes to say, I invest in people because people don't go out of business. All right. <laughs> Well, I mean, working for you, I'm sure, has got to be a very uh, beneficial experience, right? Like this, like working at Success Factors, you learned a ton, and you and you okay. brought that with you and helped you advance your career. Working under your leadership and you in a culture like yours, I can only imagine if I was one of those reps that I'm learning a lot of new things uh, that I probably couldn't learn in a lot of different ways, just because it's by way of experience, like the line you use, you can't buy experience, right? Right, So, um, but though, look internally, what what do you think it's like working for you? Like, why do you think reps outside of you investing in them, teaching them new things? Why do reps aspire to work with James? Um, (laughs) It's it's always a a tough question to even think about, let alone even try to answer. I think the, the the three things that come to mind, at least I, I try to give this to anybody I, I'm teammates with, right. you know, they don't report to me. I'm their teammate, right? I work for them. Um, one is freedom. Um, the moment you put, you must make this many phone calls or this many emails must be sent one day. I'm going to run away from that team. 
that is not how you're successful. Mm. Um, so here's all the rope. Go. Raise your hand and come find me if you need help or if you want to strategize, we can work together on things. But again, I am your teammate. I am not your boss. I'm not directing you to do things. The expectations are hit your quota. That's it. Okay. And when you everything before that is is all semantics. So sales development reps, when they first start getting used to that, they're like, really? Like, yeah. Think about it. My, <laughs> my, so much my I want sales, back there. Yeah. Right. My, my sales leadership counterparts, do you think they tell their sales reps how to close deals? No, they're just like, close your deals. Update your forecast. You know, if you need help, raise your hand. So it's kind of similar from bringing that experience of 2008 when I was a sales rep back to the sales development role. I mean, I'm asking for forecasts, like verbal commits for the targets for the month as well. Mm -hmm. So it has that emotional, psychological tie, like, oh, I, I committed to this, I gotta hit that. Um, but no, I think the biggest thing is freedom. And, you know, I don't get into the metrics of like phone and email until there's a problem or there's a struggle. You work backwards, like, oh, it sounds like, yeah. Right, right. It's uh, sales development as a function is a revenue predictability engine. And going back to the tie to sales operations, I figured if you figure out what those ratios are to lead you to success and factor in seasonality or whatever, it can really be a lot more simple. Hmm. So create the freedom, you know, go shoot yourself in the foot a few times. Just don't do it twice. My grandfather once told me there's nothing wrong with failing. Don't make a habit of it. Um, but the point is like you give them freedom it invests in themselves. Um, I think the second thing is investing in them, not only from technologies and you know mm. guest stars and and my time. And right. my time is just there to support them, but also to you know block and tackle a lot of stuff coming at us. But also um, invest in them personally. Hmm. Yeah, I've had that's... a lot of leaders don't don't know a thing about me, and I don't ever care about working for them ever again because the investment in them personally shows the investment whole hog if you want to use the you know the texas terms yeah i haven't heard that they, one they feel, <laughs> they, they, they feel that much more empowered that yeah. much more motivated that much more likely to hop out of bed on a monday morning at you know six seven eight a.m yeah there's someone day. there that actually gives a shit about who me as an individual right it's a, it's right. completely different when you walk in on a monday morning and your manager instead of saying how was your weekend they say something like how was your kid's birthday party you know, I mean, right. it's just because they're in tune enough to know that that was taking place. And right. it doesn't take a whole lot of effort to get tuned in like that. But to your point earlier, people before everything. And if you can get to that level of dynamic with your people, at least I mean, you won't work with everyone, but with a, a large percentage of people, I think you can. I think people are open to it and want that. I don't know. Yeah. But for, for me, the leaders that took that level of interest in me are the ones I ran through the walls for. Right. And it's yeah. just you got the most out of me because you put you, you cared about me. Right? So, yeah. so one, one last story about this, then I'll, I'll get to the final point is um, there was a guy that started about a month before me at success factors, 2006 name. His name is Roger Sacapa. Still a great friend today. He was my number Roger. one competitor. Roger's an amazing human being. He's still a great friend. Like I randomly ran him to him at a SDR leadership dinner, not too far back. Hmm. And he, he was the inbound guy. I was the outbound guy, same territory. And I kicked his ass every day, wow. every month. Okay. So year and a half goes by. I go into sales, the sales route, the closing route. He goes in the sales development leadership route. He becomes a manager. End of 2008, 
I got laid off, rehired, demoted, given a raise, told to go on vacation for a few weeks, come back to some SDR, got Michigan as my territory, and Roger was my boss. Oh! So I'm like, this is great, but I'm so sorry to lay off your team. He goes, yeah, I just laid off half my team, but I get you. And I'm like, no pressure, jerk. Yeah. A few, few months later, I snapped my right Achilles tendon, so I couldn't oh. leave the house. That's right. painful. Put up, couldn't leave the house, couldn't Ow. drive. Basketball, the whole like biking. Playing basketball. Yeah, yeah, uh, the, yeah. the ironic part is 53 weeks later, I went back and snapped the other one. Doing this. Dude. Oh. Yeah, don't, don't ask. We can, we can talk about that later. But yeah. point wow. is, about a week after I, I was stuck at home, who shows up at my front door after driving an hour and a half with a burrito? Because he knows I, I love these burritos in San Mateo. And he's like, by the way, here in him, this card and the card was signed by everybody in the team. And it was just that it was like, that's like leadership that, people. That, but that's also culture. And that's the culture that he was upholding and supporting and defending. And I use the word defend because right. everybody who's part of that culture is equally responsible defending that culture. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, that Roger's still an amazing story. guy. So if he's watching that, hey, Roger. Hey, Roger. <laughs> Uh, the last thing is, and I'll, and I'll say, just yeah. teach them what they can't buy or teach them what they can't read. Ooh. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the real life experience. You can't find it on, you can't find this on LinkedIn people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nope. No, it's, it's like these stories you're telling. These are at the end of the day, real life anecdotal stuff that has happened. And we've let, yeah. you know, have real lessons that we've taken away. Yeah. I mean, I, I won't tell any stories because I, I know we're running out of time, but <laughs> it's, it's the stories of, of, you know, when I, got out of the ocean just in time to not meet a tiger shark. It was a lesson that I bake into a lot of things I tell my, my team. It's lessons that I learned at art school. People are like, yeah, whatever, you have a fine arts degree. I'm like, yeah, you go go to art school and not feel like crying seven days a week after having your heart ripped out. It's it's a lot of lessons that I've learned that I can relay back to my team. But they're like, oh, shit, James has been through the ringer. Oh shit, this is the kind of stuff to avoid. Oh, that's a great idea to lean in on the relationship side of what I do and bring that back to the team and share it, not just keep it in a little box in a silo for my own use, right? So anyway, real stuff. Yeah. This is yeah. And you know, not everybody um, you know, I don't think everybody appreciates that all the time. If it doesn't come to them packaged a certain way, like a social media post or a video on YouTube. They don't give it a lot of merit sometimes like, well, you don't have 100,000 followers. Why would I listen to you? But the reality is like these gems that you're talking about are, you know, you, you people can avoid a lot of heartache and struggle by just take heeding some real life advice. I mean, you sound, we sound like some old dogs right now, but it's, you know, we're, we're trying, we're, I, we're trying to I, pass it down and give it back. I hate to say it, but old school is the right school. Ooh. It's not the best school. It's the right school. Think about it. Like full phone call, old school. Sending handwritten letters, old school. Sending direct mail, which I read an article last night about like the, the upturn of, of sending yeah. stuff because they didn't say yeah. it, but mm-hmm. everybody loves free shit. You know, you ever watch, go to a Warriors game and watch the t-shirt cannon? Hell yeah. Freak out. <laughs> it's the most uncomfortable t-shirt ever. And it's double XL. But people like, are jumping oh, over well. themselves again. <laughs> oh, you, you could have it. Go ahead. Yeah. But yeah cool, it, man. It, and another one is the, the showing up at your people's doorstep with the burrito. Like that's 
that's a gem right there because right? yeah. that will get it's all these years later it still leaves a mark right so yeah yeah all right man well you have a baby due tomorrow so go prepare go be with your wife thank you for being with us and spending this time and dropping wisdom right now uh thank you for sharing the story too about mom and everything i think uh, a lot of to the point of putting people before profits and people before everything that's kind of the, the idea there is i really want to know james barton as a person holistically the sales advice, the strategies, the tactics are all good. Everybody take those, run with them, implement in your business. But look up uh, look, look up James as well and uh, follow him, I believe, on LinkedIn. Where, where do you want people to go to check you out? Yeah, best place to find is, is LinkedIn. Uh, I'm pretty much on it every day. So if you send me an email or message, I'll be happy to respond. Um, but yeah, I mean, I pretty much accept all connection requests. So. You've been listening to the Sales Consultant Podcast. If you enjoyed the interview and would like to support the show, please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and or on Spotify. Please also consider following our LinkedIn page. If you're an industry expert or if you know an industry expert that should be on the show, message us on LinkedIn at the Sales Consultant Podcast.